1: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And he's here to say good afternoon to you. Welcome
2: to the Wednesday, March 20th edition. Spring has sprung. And uh, actually, we had some rain last night, but today looks fairly decent. Though promises is uh, heading into the weekend with more rain, but that's okay. We can we can handle 130 percent of normal rainfall. Isn't that nice for a change? I don't know why I seem to be obsessed with the winter at the start of the show of late, but at any rate, uh, maybe because summer's on my mind. (laughs) Who knows? Any event, great to have you with us on today's program. A little bit later on in tonight's show, Daniel Yohanan will join us. He, of course, is the son of KP Yohanan, the founder and director of Gospel for Asia. They are embarking on a very important and critical project here during the month of March, and specifically on Friday, which marks World Water Day. Speaking of rain, something most of us in the Western Hemisphere has never heard about because we've never had to deal with the problem. But it's ironic when you find out internationally how many millions of people every year die from either no water or poor water, poor water conditions that caused them to succumb to a broad variety of preventable diseases that otherwise they would not be exposed to had they had access to clean, pure water. So Daniel Hannon will join us a little bit later on tonight to tell us more about this important project. Meanwhile, there's a very important project that's going to be occurring a week from tomorrow in Sacramento. And this has to do with a topic we have discussed many times on this program. Uh, We have seen a a steady push towards further and further degrees of extremism in the state of California at the hands of the California state legislature. And if you thought it was fun when we had Governor Moonbeam in charge, just wait till you try the gubernatorial uh, tenure Of uh, Gavin Newsom. Um, One of the bills that is currently under consideration in Sacramento is Assembly Bill 329, also called the California Healthy Youth Act, that has been a model for so called comprehensive sex education nationwide. And uh, this measure uh, is really pushing the extremes to the point where now all of a sudden a gender dysphoria. Is a topic of discussion and education for children as young as kindergarten, you say what now, Craig? you must have misread that well don't believe me, maybe you'll believe Eileen Blakowski. Eileen is the spokesperson with informed parents of California, and Eileen, thank you for being with us today uh, This really for a lot of parents, I think becomes such a degree of of, of incredulity. Over the notion that suddenly we are trying to promote such an agenda within so-called health education or better put sex education in California that we find it necessary, at least this legislature does, um, to, to push on our children education on their choices of gender as young as kindergarten. I mean, no wonder parents say, are you kidding me with this?
3: You're absolutely right. Craig, thank you so much for having me on and for giving us an opportunity to talk about this really important subject. You're right. Most parents are absolutely incredulous. In fact, the whole situation is so incredulous that most people say that can't be happening. Surely our state couldn't be taking this on and subjecting our children to this knowingly. And I would uh, submit that yes, they are. And uh, it is happening. And what we have is a we have a Facebook group. It's informed parents of CA I'm sorry. I'm giving you a website informed parents of California. And on that Facebook group, we provide the truth. We show you the proof of what's in the curriculum that you can see it for yourself, because unless you see the proof yourself, parents have a really hard time understanding the depth to, to which the curriculum goes. And, you know, we you talked about the whole point of this being shared down to kindergarten age children. Disturbingly, um, the law only required that sex ed be taught once in junior high and once in high school. But by the time the education apparatus in this state runs it through all of their committees and their, their biased committees and framework people and writers and revisionists, it comes out in the form of a framework for education. That framework will drive, they, the state of California calls that a guidance document, but what it is, it's gonna set the standards for what is taught in the classroom And it's in that framework document that we see this gender indoctrination starting at pre-kindergarten this is four years old teachers are instructed to challenge children on their gender stereotypes
2: you know i I can't even begin to imagine what 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 kind of of crazy thinking goes into any of this Uh, while we know that there is a very minute percentile of children that struggle with gender dysphoria I highly doubt many of them are going through it and there's no clinical evidence to prove that any great percentile of them are dealing with it as early as age five or six. And a lot of this almost seems to be the, the um, what's the term I'm looking for, seems to be the domino effect, the, 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 the snowball growing out of hand. We began with, well, for children that are in the teen years, meaning middle school to high school, that are struggling with these issues, they should not be forced to uh, go to the, bathroom of their birth gender but rather should have the freedom to select whichever one they wish gender fluidity and therefore we passed a law in california stating that um a kids can decide whatever bathroom they want to go to if they feel like they want to be a member of the girls soccer team they can join that if they're feeling uh, the more feminine than, uh, than they are masculine i mean it it's it's unbelievable the kind of social experimentation that we're doing, and we're using our children as guinea pigs or creating this sort of crazy petri dish in which these types of issues are being foisted upon them so that kids that don't even have an issue, never even thought about it, all of a sudden feel as if they need to grapple with these questions. And six-year-olds, I mean, come on, under any other set of circumstances, you would look at this and say, this is nothing short of child abuse.
3: You're absolutely right about that. In fact, we say um, that it's state-sanctioned sexual exploitation of children. That's what it is. Who who else do we know? What other community of people do we know that will expose very young children to pornographic sexual (laughs) pictures, information, and education? I mean, who does that and for what purpose? Parents do need to be asking themselves that question, and they really do need to be digging in deep, going to their school board meetings, asking their schools what's being taught. Um, A lot of things that we're seeing are, some of these things are being rolled out in the classroom now at very young ages, but because this framework document is out there and yet to be adopted, some school districts are kind of holding back, but that adoption is set for early May, and the rally we're having next week in Sacramento is our last, public opportunity to go to an Instructional Quality Commission meeting. This is the organization, this con- unelected committee have been making the uh, framework changes that, that's bringing in all this indoctrination and heavily sexualized content into every subject area. This is not going to be kept just a health education. Your kids are going to be reading in kindergarten and first grade, My Princess Boy, and they're going to be reading per- It's Perfectly Normal by the fourth and fifth grade. These have pornographic images of of sexual positions, of people's private body parts and comparisons among people, Um, you know, naked pictures. I mean, things that I can't even share on air because um, otherwise, you know... I'd Uh, be in trouble with the FCC,
2: exactly. That's
3: right. You'd be fine for it. But we can teach this. We should not. We should not teach it, and we should not accept it being taught to our children in public school classrooms.
2: Uh, You mentioned about this rally that's going to happen at the Capitol on March the 28th. That's a week from tomorrow, Thursday, at 10 a.m. This rally designed, obviously, to call attention. Uh, to just the the, the the madness of all of this proposal. And then from there, what? Is there going to be an opportunity for folks, if they wish to, to spend some time with their representative?
3: Absolutely. That's absolutely the case. On Thursdays, the, our legislators are still there in session. To get there early in the day, you'll be able to meet with your legislators. But we have another opportunity, too, and that is the final public meeting of this Instructional Quality Commission who is going to make the final recommendations about this uh, health framework document and the State Board of Ed will vote on it in May. So this is our last public opportunity to make a big splash and come out strong and say reject this health framework. This is like if you can uh, imagine a steering wheel on a bus it's, it's all the laws are the wheels it's the framework that is steering us into mass confusion and mass sexualization of our children in public schools. So the rally is at 10 a.m. We will meet on the south steps of the Capitol, and we have about a one-hour program, and we have some legislators who are sponsoring us. Uh, Senator Mike Morell um, is uh, co-sponsoring us. California Family Council is assisting us and
4: co-sponsoring with us.
3: Uh, we have a number of organizations, including Concerned Women for America, uh, Eagle Forum of California, the Salt and Light Council, Church United, Pacific Justice Institute, and others. Uh, We are just so pleased that they are coming alongside parents who love their kids and want to say absolutely no way on my watch will you sexualize my kids in schools. If if we aren't successful, um, I'm pushing back on this at the rally and at public comment, and if they move through and they adopt this framework, we have to, it is just the just thing to do. We need to tell parents the schools are not safe for your kids. They really are not. Um, You know, they are creating a situation where kids will be greatly confused. They, little kids are not able to cognitively handle these concepts. They don't know how how to reconcile that that biology is somehow different from their perceived gender. So this is going to become a very psychologically unsafe situation for many kids in California's public schools.
2: Again, this rally is going to be a week from tomorrow. That'll be Thursday, March the 28th on the south steps of the Capitol, beginning at 10 a.m. And uh, we've got some time here. We have time to rally the troops. We have time for you to be in contact with uh, your friends and acquaintances at church and other parents that you know. Let them be aware of what's going on. I realize not everybody can necessarily take the day off to head up there, but those that can should. And uh, repeat, if you, again, if you would, please, Allen, the um, Facebook page. This would be an ideal way for parents to hop on, like the page, share the page with others so we can get a little bit of grassroots uh, promotion here.
3: Oh, absolutely. The, the page is called Informed Parents of California. And on that page, there's a search bar you can look um, you can look up your school district you can look up your county and see if there are other people in your area who are organizing in your own local area. you can look up curriculum and you can see proof from curriculum you can see just how graphic some of this stuff is. You do need to see the proof for yourself. You can see letters from various school districts that are absolutely disrespecting parents own parental rights to decide um, what their children can be exposed to and that's one thing we didn't mention is so critically important. Parents do not have a right to opt out of any of this gender indoctrination material. Ooh. None of the subjects. Wow. None of it. Yes, that is, I mean, it's absurd. So we, we need people to do the hard thing of making a deep sacrifice. Do take the day off of work. Please do show up. We've been told by legislators who feel like their hands are tied and school um, administrators who feel like their hands are tied. They said these laws are already passed. There's nothing we can do but comply with them. And they said, unless you bring thousands of people to speak out against this, there's really nothing we can do. It is up to we, the people at this point, to turn this around. If it's going to happen, it'll be because parents and community members and faith leaders stood together. And we, we said, absolutely, no, not on our watch.
2: And again, this rally is going to be held on the south steps of the Capitol on March the 28th at 10 a.m. That's a week from tomorrow, Thursday. And to get more information and to spread the word, simply go to Facebook and check out Informed Parents of California's page. Again, that's Informed Parents of California. And really critical here, uh, because as Aline just articulated, if we don't get parents involved here and really get a stir going in Sacramento, uh, this is going to be codified by the State Department of Education, and then it's really going to be difficult to unravel this mess. And my fear is, my fear is, uh, we've seen in some other cases, not all that dissimilar, uh, it's not until the lawsuits roll through because people have been hurt or victimized that suddenly we wake up and say, oh, wait, no, that wasn't a good idea. Gee, we shouldn't have done that. Well, let's try to uh, not be victims of the frog and the kettle theory here, but instead be proactive um, and do what we can. There is a time and a place for children to learn about these things. But the sexualization of kids as young as six and <laughs> under the guise of we're, we're dealing with confusion by creating more confusion, great, unbelievable the agenda taking place. Again, that rally on the south steps of the Capitol. That'll be Thursday, March the 28th, 10 a.m. Information available. Check out Facebook page, Informed Parents of California. That's Informed Parents of California. And our thanks to Aline Bukowski for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. All right, 520, time for us to get caught up in some traffic here. Let's swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center and we say hello to Michael Bennett. Michael, it's all yours.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Welcome back to The Conversation. We're here at 23 minutes past the hour. Uh, there's been some released uh, information from the uh, World Health Organization recently that ought to set you back on your heels as it did I. And, and I, I mention this in light of the fact that we've been talking a lot about the weather of late. And I mentioned earlier we're, as of this morning, at 130% of uh, precipitation in the San Francisco Bay Area for the year. That's certainly welcome relief. We all know what it's like to deal with drought and not to be able to water lawns or water plants or keep the swimming pool topped off, et cetera, et cetera. But ironically, as much as we know what it's like to deal with drought in California, I would venture to guess that... Far fewer of us know anything about what it's like to deal with a severe water shortage, the kind of water shortage where you're unable to get water to drink and thus can't sustain life. Did you know, for example, that you can go up to, on average, three weeks without food and still survive? few of us, maybe even longer than that. But without water, three to four days is kind of the maximum. And you'll die. The statistics from the WHO regarding the number that die from lack of clear, potable water is shocking. Every year, 502,000 people, over a half million, die from waterborne illnesses. 2.1 billion have no access to safely managed drinking water. Another 159 million around the planet get their drinking water directly from surface water sources, that means puddles and ponds. And on average, over a quarter of a billion people, 263 million to be precise, must travel more than a half hour daily just to collect water for their family. And as the population grows and fluctuation of climate continues, no doubt the circumstances will only grow worse. Joining me is the Vice President of Gospel for Asia. You are certainly well familiar with the ministry of his father. I've been a guest on this program many times. I'm speaking of KP Johannan, the Founder International Director of Gospel for Asia. Joining us now is the Vice President of Gospel for Asia, KP's son, Daniel. Daniel, great to have you back on the program.
5: Thank you. It's good
2: to be here. Well, we talk about these numbers, and, and we do so because this coming Friday is, in fact, World Water Day. And many of us live in parts of the country, at least in California, where we have kind of a fleeting awareness of some of the difficulties that come with a lack of rainwater. But the irony is, I think no one in the United States really understands what it's like to suffer from water shortages unto death. And yet, unfortunately, for such a big percentile of the population, as I mentioned a moment ago, that's indeed the kind of reality that they face every day.
5: No, you're exactly right. Oftentimes, because um, it's not happening right in front of us or it's not happening to us, we... We don't realize that globally the water crisis is a real thing that is happening uh, that literally affects every country in the world. Even our country uh, here in the United States is is affected by it. Like you said, it may not affect as many people, but the reality is uh, water is one of those things that you can't live without and most of the world doesn't have access to clean water you know some of the numbers that you were reading like you know 2.1 billion people don't have access to safe manageable drinking water um those numbers are so large it doesn't it doesn't even register what that means it's like taking all of europe and all the united states and all the people combined still don't make up that number it's just so many people around the world uh... with uh... basically daily surviving trying to figure out where their water is going to come from for drinking and bathing and taking care of their animals and crops and washing the clothes and dishes it's a, a daily struggle just for life and so this is a, a good opportunity march twenty-second is you know World water day it's, it's a day that you know besides donut day and every other day uh... this is something that we can actually bring attention to that is a real crisis and a real opportunity to make change and to bring change to people's lives to help them and pull them out of the struggle that they're in and that's what you know gospel for Asia our heart is to do that is to help as many people as possible to be touched by the love of Christ but especially during this opportunity to present uh, water As something that is in great need, but we also are able to provide a great answer.
2: Yeah, it really is a life and death circumstance. And as you point out, ironically, a lot of us don't think of it or don't have the capacity to put things in perspective because it doesn't impact us. And we we see water and we think, well, wait a minute, water's plentiful. Water, you know, encompasses over seventy one percent of the Earth's surface. And yet, the irony is there's such a small percentile of it that's available, that is clean, potable, that doesn't create, you know, issues in terms of, you know, ocean water's fine, but it's salinated. So how do we deal with that? So there is a real harsh reality here, and I think particularly from a ministry standpoint, Daniel, we've got to think of this both in terms of addressing felt needs and the spiritual needs. One of the big areas, of course, of emphasis of uh, your ministry is the continent of of, uh, of India, and uh, there you see a burgeoning, fast, quick, rapidly growing church, and, and also a rapidly growing population where water is becoming scarcer and scarcer on the continent, even at a time when it's predicted that in the next 30 years, the percentile of demand for clean potable water will increase by some 30%. No,
5: exactly. Many places um, in Asia, like uh, India particularly, and then parts of Africa, are uh, the ones that are most affected, partly because you do have long drought seasons and then you do have monsoons, but when you have harsh monsoons, you can't save all that water that gets dumped all at once. And so it is is—it is a, a massive, massive crisis and one thing that might help people to just be aware of what's happening go to your local supermarket wherever you are the water a gallon of water is nearly or more costly than a gallon of gas oftentimes and so um the water the water prices are going up globally and people are are willing to pay for it but in many of the countries like india uh... people have to literally walk sometimes from miles away from their village or from their home for a couple of reasons. One is they may be part of a certain group or caste that they're not allowed uh, to take water from the common well or from the common uh, water source. And so these people rejected by society have to walk sometimes 10, 15 miles away to get water and bring it back. And, uh, the other reason there may not be uh, you know, locally water found is because it's so contaminated they, ha- they have to go and find a better water source. Now, the crisis is also compounded by this, that most of those that are going to get the water from far distances are, are women and children who are girls, which prevents a lot of the girls from going to school. It endangers them in very lonely rural areas. And so it is a compounded effect where now they're drinking contaminated water, they're getting sick, and now they're spending money on medicine, which they don't have the luxury of spending it on medicine rather than food. And so it is just this massive problem where water provided can actually help the economy, help the health, help the families, and it just it provides education indirectly to so many people. And so this is one of the things that Gospel for Asia is all about, is helping people to have access to clean water. One of the things that I'm very proud of is over the past couple of years, and one of the years past, we were able to uh, dig and drill um, over 4,500 uh, wells. We call them Jesus wells, you know, referring to Jesus said, I'm living water. And, you know, Gospel for Asia uh, provides clean access wells, uh, more than any other ministry, I believe, in the entire world. And uh, not only that, we do biosand filters. So where there is no water, we dig wells. Where there is water but may be contaminated and could cause disease and sickness, we provide these biosand filters. And we've done uh, tens of thousands of these biosand filters, put dirty water on the top, clean water comes out the spout through the filtration system. Um, very, very simple process, but you are providing clean accessible water to people who are in desperate desperate need
2: and of course the irony is uh, in the Western world rarely do we hear of people who die from things like typhoid fever cholera polio and yet it's prevalent in many parts of the world simply because they don't have access to water or they don't have access to clean water and as Daniel Johannan mentioned, they are working diligently to change all of that and to provide potable water for literally tens of thousands of people. We're going to talk a bit more about this and, and um, how you can learn to be involved in providing a Jesus well to a community that could preserve up to some 300 people with healthy, clear water. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back. With us today is the Vice President of Gospel for Asia, Daniel Johannan, on the phone with us. We take a timeout. We'll get back to more of that visit right now, though. Let's visit with Michael Bennett. Get an update for us from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? <laughs>
1: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Daniel Johannan
2: is with us today. He, of course, is the Vice President of Gospel for Asia Ministries. We've been talking about um, Friday, March the 22nd, which is International Water Day, and it is designed to help create awareness and call attention to the water crisis. And we think, yeah, Craig, we've been having rain and more rain on the way. There's no water crisis here, no. But for a lot of the world, it's a very different scenario. And when you consider the fact that there are hundreds of thousands every year that die because they have no access to safe, potable water, you begin to realize this is a crisis that's going to, as the population grows, continue to grow. In fact, the World Health Organization is suggesting that the demand for water will increase by 30% over the next 30 years. Let's talk a bit about um, some of the methodology, and you've alluded to both the wells as well as the biosand uh, water filters. Um, In relationship to Friday being World Water Day. What's the goal here? What does Gospel for Asia hope to accomplish when it comes to addressing some of this crisis, Daniel?
5: Well, some of the crisis, you know, one of the things that we've done is for so many years, over these past 40 years, uh, we've always have been looking for opportunities to help those in greatest need, whether it's uh, helping people that have suffered through a tsunami or an earthquake or natural disasters, flooding, uh, water crisis. Uh, some of the places that we work in, you know, our field partners, they they have to deal with a water crisis every single year, but it comes in the terms of uh, flooding, yearly flooding that contaminates all the wells and contaminates all the, the drinking sources. So it is one of those uh, things that we've been doing for a very, very long time. But part of it, the answer is this, is being able to provide either the tools, like Biosand filters to filter dirty water to make it clean, or to provide a community with a well uh, that sometimes we have to dig, usually around 600 feet down, but sometimes it can go up to past 1,000 feet to make sure that the water table is uh, is completely you know saturated the during the hot season. Um, providing uh, you know a a well in the middle of the village where everyone has access and no one's discriminated from taking water. Uh, but also education, and I think people forget that. A lot of times you have water sources like ponds that may be clean or wells that may be clean, open-bore wells, but then if the sanitation is not clean, if people are using the restrooms in uh, places that are nearby water sources, you contaminate the water sources. If certain animals are... Uh, contaminating the water sources and the people get sick and so we do a multi-step process of providing tools providing the community with opportunity to water but then we also provide education to be able to help people know how to make sure long-term that they stay healthy and then also medical training preventative disease training and those kinds of things are part of what we do normally during this time. I think during the World Water Crisis Day, or World Water Day, um, it's one of those things, our hope and our prayer is this, that it doesn't simply become an awareness campaign. We have tens of thousands of awareness campaigns that happen all the time on Instagram and Facebook, and everyone wants to like and pass around and Facebook everything. But the reality is, if, if something is a need and a question I should ask is, what can I do about it? For all of us at least we can pray that is something we can pray about I would love to see this next Sunday that every single church and parish and Cathedral would take five minutes out of their service to pray for those who are in great need around the world can we take a few minutes to pray can we gather our family together to pray and ask God to somehow Bless the many ministries that are doing these great works to be able to provide clean water and help people. Uh, second is, is while we are praying, ask the Lord to fill our heart with compassion. When Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. He didn't simply feel sorry for them, but his heart was deeply broken. Unless our Christian faith brings us to the place of prayer and brokenness, I'm not sure what kind of Christian faith we have, maybe an empty, uh, self-centered one. But it must be bathed in compassion and then move to action. Use our social media, use our means of communication to spread the word and help people know that there are opportunities practically, tangibly, that we can help people who are in great need. And part of it is, you know, praying, partnering with Gospel for Asia and looking for opportunities even locally that we can help people who are in need of clean and access to water. And this has always been our heart asking people to stand with us as we share the love of Christ tangibly and practically with people, but also helping them to physically get out of the situation that they're in.
2: So it really is a a dual-pronged approach here. It's addressing felt needs, obviously opening up a door to also address spiritual needs. And uh, this is a problem that, as Daniel points out, is not going away anytime soon. We'll continue to grow. So the better job we do in responding to it The better chances there are of allowing more people, quite frankly, to survive and thrive if you want to get more information, you can go online to uh, GFA, think Gospel for Asia, gfa.org. Again, this coming Friday is World Water Day, March the 22nd, not a, an attempt just to raise awareness, but also to provide hope and for people to get involved in making a difference, and certainly a great opportunity to do so in partnership with Gospel for Asia. Again, information available on the web at gfa.org. That's GFA. .org. And our thanks to Daniel Johannan, Vice President of Gospel for Asia, for being with us. 545, our thanks, too, to Michael Bennett. He's always with us with a look at your ride home. The latest right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael.
1: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Back to our conversation. Okay, here's the big question for you, parents. And that is simply this. Do your kids tend to get the most attention when they're in trouble? And what are you doing the rest of the time? Addressing that question, the book, No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. Co-author Jill Savage is with us. And, and Jill, what about that? I mean, I know that we live very busy lifestyles, and oftentimes both parents are working and we're running to and fro. We've got jobs to maintain. We have houses to, to take care of, grocery shopping to do. We've got to get the kids to uh, everything from band practice to soccer practice and everything in between. And then we we think we're giving our kids a lot of attention, but then the the real one-on-one attention seems in some cases to only really excel when they're in trouble
4: uh, it's true, and I think it's an easy way an easy place for us as parents to to fall into uh, you know the book is built around questions that each of our kids are asking deep inside their hearts. they're questions that we asked when we were kids uh, those questions are uh, simple questions like um do you like me? You know, that was one that that you mentioned a little bit earlier. But another question is, am I important to you? And uh, in today's uh, fast-paced life, oftentimes our kids are only getting our attention when they do something negative, when we're correcting them, and that doesn't tell them that they're important. And so I think we really have to... Um, we have to, and, and also if our goal is to get to know our child, to study our child, uh, only, you know, interacting and knowing them when, when their behavior is negative is not going to help us explore. Uh, so we really need to spend time with our kids. We need to, to dig into to life with them. And, um, you know, we have a, a son that, our, the one that wasn't musical that I was sharing earlier, he loves to run. And when he was in junior high, uh, we encouraged him to do cross-country. And he actually, when he was in seventh grade, he won the state cross-country meet. And so here he was, seventh grade, he was winning state. And in our minds, we're thinking, by the time he gets to high school, he is going to be one of the top runners and possibly have scholarship opportunities. So, of course, we encouraged him to keep going and keep going and keep running. And he hated it. He hated cross country and we thought, why, why he loved to run, but why? Well, we spent some time digging into that and, and instead of just correcting him and pushing him, uh, we, you know, just tried to have some very intentional conversations and really come to understand him. And it took us a while to dig it out of him and figure out what was at the heart of it. But here's the deal. He loved to run. He hated competition. Mm. This is where knowing our child and knowing their heart and and having compassion and love and acceptance and perception. Those are the uh, four antidotes to the perfection infection. So perception is that we're really perceiving or trying to perceive or paying attention to what's going on on the inside of our child's
2: heart. How do we know, though, when to push and what not to push? Because there's another example out of the book that you share with uh, one of the four musical children whom you encouraged to take a semester of choir, and I understand that he went into that thing kicking and screaming all the way, and uh, a couple of days into it said, forget about it, I'm not going to do it, and all these fights, and you insisted he had to complete... At least one semester, and slowly, all of a sudden, he's coming home and talking about new friends that he met in choir practice, and they're going to be traveling here to do this. And before you know it, uh, this became, as you suggested inside the book, one of the highlights of his scholastic career. So, how do you know that delicate balance of of when to push and when not to push?
4: That is a great question, and it comes down to knowing your child. You, it comes down to paying attention to the little things. That same child. I also share a story in the book that that same child wanted to play football when he was in sixth grade. And the only place you could do that was on a community team. And so we made arrangements for him. to. And we couldn't imagine. He didn't seem like the football type, but he wanted to play football. And so we uh, allowed him to do that. And he came home the first day uh, from practice, hated it, Uh, in tears, I don't want to go back and we said, "Oh my gosh, of course you're going back. You've wanted this, you know, for years, and uh, you're not we're not raising a quitter." And so we sent him back the second time. He came back again in tears. "I hate it. I don't want to do this anymore." Third day, same thing. By the fourth day, I noticed that he had actually bit his nails down to the quicks. His nails were bleeding. This child was so emotionally uh overwhelmed and distraught with the possibility of going to that football
5: practice
4: that I remember the day that my husband and I said, oh, my gosh, this is not worth it. This is not worth it. It is it is stressing him out in a way that is unhealthy. And we actually allowed him to quit. So then several years later, of course, when we required him to take the music class that he didn't want to take, uh, we didn't see that same kind of stress. We saw his will, and he was not happy that we were requiring him to take choir. Um, but you know what? He eventually uh, grew to love it, and we thought that that would be the situation. So I think it comes down to paying attention to your child, really knowing them. And we could have just kept pushing him to do that football. And who knows where we would have been with him emotionally, uh, because it was obviously dressing him out in, to, a, to a place that was actually unhealthy. But I think it comes down to really paying attention to the little things, to what's going on on the inside, uh, to having those conversations. You know, our kids tend to like to talk at bedtime. And for parents, most of us are like, I want to just tell you goodnight, kiss you goodnight, and go to bed because I'm done. You know?
0: yeah. <laughs>
3: We're
4: just you. done at that moment in time. And that's a lot of times when we get to hear our kids' hearts or they'll share something. And so we have to to make ourselves available for those conversations and know our child and pay attention to those little things that often give us a clue to what's going
2: on with them. And it comes back to such an important point of balance as we've discussed, I think, throughout our visit today. And you mentioned this in the book, parents, we have to be mindful that our kids are created first and foremost. They may, like, they may look like us in the mirror, but at the end of the day, they're created in God's image, not our yeah. own. And we know that God has no stepchildren and that he has a unique individual plan and calling on each and every one of our lives. And what you want for your child, as wonderful and altruistic as it may be, May not necessarily be what God wants for your child. And so, um, learning to know what the purpose and calling those of their, is on their life, allowing them to experience failure, correcting them without criticizing them, getting to know your kids, uh, particularly as, as you point out, Jill, the difference that it makes when we know as a parent when we should push and when not to push can make all the difference between, um, not creating maybe or or raising perfect kids, but certainly happy and successful children. And that, I think, at the end of the day, is the most important thing.
4: It is. It really is. And I think the more uh, we get to know our children and then as they get older, it's also important for them to get to know us and uh, for them to know that our failures, our struggles, and because at, at at some point they need to know we're not perfect either. Life is hard. We all have struggles. We all have things that we have to work through. Uh, failure is a normal part of this living experience. And so the more we help our kids know that those are normal things in their life because they're normal things in our life, that also gives them permission to not try to be perfect, but to embrace the, what I call the perfecting process that God has all of us in. Because we mature best through our failures, through our struggles, through coming to know ourselves.
2: And And that's the perfecting process. Indeed so. And, And, of course, that perfecting process is one that God largely works out. And so at the end of the day, parents, you can have a deep sigh of relief here. No more perfect kids. Just Loving Our Kids for Who They Are. The new book, by the way, you'll find it uh bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Amazon.com has it as well. It's published by Moody and uh, our guest today, the co-author Jill Savage. Information, too, on Jill's website at jillsavage.org. That's Jill, J-I-L-L, jillsavage.org. And our thanks to Arthur Jill Savage for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline.